Welcome back to the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide podcast. We're going to be discussing the recent United States Supreme Court decision of Carpenter versus United States, which involved the issue of whether a search warrant is required to obtain historical cell site data, data that can establish a person's whereabouts with a fair amount of accuracy. We'll be talking about whether the holding in Carpenter changes the law at all in California, which already has a statute limiting access to such data, and be discussing some other issues raised by the opinion with Santa Clara County high-tech crimes prosecutor Tom Flattery. This edition of the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide will provide 45 minutes of general MCLE credit. Thanks for joining me, Tom. Hello, Jeff. I'm happy to be here. So, Tom, why don't we uh, start off the conversation with you telling us about the relevant facts in the Carpenter case? Absolutely. There, there were a series of robberies at uh, cell phone stores and other businesses in uh, Michigan and Ohio. Uh, local law enforcement arrested four suspects, one of whom cooperated and provided information about his co-conspirators. He also provided cell phone numbers. And law enforcement then accessed this cooperator's uh, phone and identified additional uh, telephone numbers for co-conspirators. Uh, after identifying these cell phone numbers, the FBI uh, got a 2703D order to disclose uh, location information from the identified co-conspirators to see if he could match those those other suspects up with the locations of the various robberies. Uh, Tom, you just said a 2703 uh, order. Why do the police even bother to obtain a court order at all for this kind of information? Well, it's required by federal statute, and I I guess it might help to give a little bit of background. Uh, I'm sure we're all aware of the Miller and Smith opinions from uh, the 60s, basically, saying that there was no expectation of privacy in third-party records. Uh, And a reaction to that lack of a constitutional privacy right, uh, Congress enacted the uh, Stored Communications Act in 1986 to impose a statutory privacy right on these records held by third-party electronic communication service providers. Okay, it just uh, just applies to electronic communications. We're not talking about third-party records in general. Uh, just electronic communications uh, and remote computing services. And it was uh, amended slightly in 2001 by the Patriot Act to expand the definition of uh, subscriber information. But the Stored Communications Act provides a three-tiered system of uh, increasing levels of court orders to get uh, increasing levels of more private information. So with a subpoena, you can get basic subscriber information. With a, uh, a court order, a 2703D order, you can get metadata, information about the communication. And with a warrant, you could get uh, content uh, in, in storage less than 180 days. So in this case, they wanted metadata. So the police followed the law and got a 2703D order. And in order to get the 2703D uh, order, do you need to establish probable cause or is something less than that sufficient? Yeah, it's it's a slightly le- uh, smaller standard or lower standard. You, you have to show articulable facts that the information uh, gained will be re- relevant and material to an ongoing criminal investigation. Okay, so the, what... I'm sorry. I, I just want to say that an interesting point in this case is 
that the police had information from a co-conspirator that the identified suspect was involved in the crime and provided his cell phone number. So under any standard, that establishes probable cause. Uh, but they got a de-order because that's what the law required and because it's slightly more convenient to get a de-order than to get a warrant in the federal system. Okay. So they didn't need the probable cause, but they had it. Yes. Now, uh, what did the order actually direct and who was it directed to? Uh, There were two orders directed to uh, cell phone service providers that uh, told them to give um, historical location information for the the various suspects, including Carpenter, was one of the, the suspects identified by this cooperative. All right. Well, Tom, when you talk about historical uh, cell site data, which we can refer to as CSLI throughout the remainder of this pro- uh, podcast, uh, what exactly is cell site location information? And uh, how does it identify where a person is located? Yeah, the, this is something that the court got a little bit wrong. Uh, the court thinks that cell site location information is more pervasive and, and a little uh, more accurate than it actually is. But uh, the point is that when a f- phone connects to the cellular system, it, it, it works as a radio, basically, between the, the handheld device and an antenna maintained by the, the cell phone service provider. And that antenna has a series of uh, directional beacons, a directional antennas on a tower. And uh, the tower has a certain range, and there are several towers that maybe overlap a little bit. So the, the uh, individual device, cell phone uh, handset, will connect with the antenna and the tower that has the best signal at a given time. Uh, and is, that it in con- be- is it in constant communication? In other words, is, is it constantly sending signals to the cell towers? The phone is constantly sending signals, but this is another thing the court got wrong. Uh, the only thing that's logged is the connection tower antenna and the disconnect tower antenna. Uh, it's not giving a constant real-time 24-7 location map uh, like a GPS would. Okay. Uh, right now, is there, do you, is there is a technology in a state where it might be able to give uh, comparable data to like a GPS, you know, a few years down the road? The, yes. Uh, the, the technology is getting better. And uh, some carriers are able to give an approximate distance from the antenna uh, so you can narrow down the the area that a phone could be in, uh, but it still does not give a a, a constant or a real time twenty four seven location like a GPS would. All right, so uh, that's uh, CSLI data. Um, when we talk about um, historical CSLI data, we're talking about the data that has already been collected. When we talk about real-time CSLI data, it would be data that would be uh, actually being conveyed at the time the police are monitoring the, the cell phone. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So uh, a, a de-order was issued. And how does this case end up before the United States Supreme Court? Well, the uh, Carpenter uh, objected basically to the de-order and claimed that uh, the order was not based on probable cause and that he had a reasonable expectation of privacy in his location information. Uh, therefore, a warrant was required. 
The trial court denied that motion. Uh, he appealed to the Sixth Circuit, and they also followed existing precedents in Miller and uh, Smith and said there's no expectation of privacy in third-party records and denied the order. And then Carpenter appealed to the U.S. Supremes. Okay, so when it gets up uh, taken up by the U.S. Supreme Court, what is the actual issue they take it up on? Uh, whether there is a legitimate or reasonable expectation of privacy in uh, historical cell phone location information held by the third-party service provider. Okay. So they take it up. The, the first thing they, I guess they had to decide was whether or not this was even a search obtaining this data. Uh, generally, you know, if there is not some sort of physical trespass to property, a search requires that a person have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the place or, or property invaded. Well, this information came from a cell provider's own records. I mean, did they find that the defendant, the defendant had a reasonable expectation of privacy in data that was being provided by a third party, i.e. the, you know, the service provider? Yeah, th this is really something that's brand new. Uh, understand, this is information that the defendant did not create, did not own, did not have access to, uh, maybe didn't even know about. Uh, but it recorded his physical location over an extended period of time. And the court said that location is, uh, uh, is, is different than the kinds of records described in Miller and Smith. And that a person does have a legitimate expectation of privacy in their location history. Well, uh, Tom, in, in Smith, the case you're referring to, Smith versus Maryland, the, the Supreme Court had ruled that the government's use of a pen register, which is a device that records uh, outgoing phone numbers dialed on a landline telephone, they held that that was not a search. And in the other case that you've been referring to, United States versus Miller, the court held the Fourth Amendment didn't protect several months of a defendant's bank records from a warrantless seizure since the defendant couldn't assert ownership or possession of those bank records. H how did the Carpenter case distinguish both Smith and Miller? Well, they just say that these records are, are basically so much better than the, the type of business records you're referring to. First, cell phones are, uh, they say, a pervasive and insistent part of daily life that carrying one is basically indispensable in the participation in modern society. Um, you know, table for a moment whether that's true, but uh, that's what they, they said. Uh, they said that uh, uh, cell phone logs and cell phone uh, records, um, the, by the, the, the mere operation of the phone, uh, record uh, so much more data. And, and I think I've said already that the court just got that wrong. Uh, the, the cell phone records do not contain the kind of data that the court is describing here, but that's what they said. But you, but but the information that the, that comes from accessing the cell phone towers that can come even though the person doesn't necessarily like try to text or have a communication. It's just. Right, done that, by the act of powering of powering up the phone. Right, that, that's my point, though. That's what the the court said, but that's not actually true. Uh, the The historical cell phone location information gives you the tower that you connect to and the tower tower that you disconnect from. Uh, there are some providers that will keep this 
latent information for a very short time, but that's not typically provided in the historical location information. So what would be typically provided in the historical information? I mean, the, the, the court here is saying, hey, this information about where the person is located uh, basically provides a window into the person's life and can reveal their family, their political, their professional, their religious, their sexual associations. And uh, that's what they were kind of focusing on. Right. No, that's absolutely true. And if a person is making a call from those locations, from a church or from his mistress's house or whatever, uh, that information could be disclosed in the historical information. But they seem to be thinking that you're getting a real-time running map of where a person is 24-7, and, and that simply is not true. Okay. Uh, so even uh, assuming that they got this, got it wrong, uh, did they try to draw a distinction between, like, bank records? I mean, bank records also kind of give you a pretty good idea of what someone's life is like. And we know that you can get bank records, which could be for years worth of bank records. Why is that really any different than... Uh, CSLI information. Well, it's a tough argument to make, but they draw the distinction based on uh, you're getting a person's physical location, and as they say, without any input from the the the, the uh, uh, account holder. Whereas with uh, the banking records, uh, it's basically a commercial transaction that uh, you do have to take a a physical act to create that you you know you're creating them and you know you're interacting with this third party. So do you think that uh, we're dealing with a very unique situation here such that all the factors have to be present here? It's got to be, number one, historical uh, CSLI. It's got to be the, the uh, a request for an, the, a comparable amount of data. In other words, in this case, they asked for two types of data. One was like covered 120 days and, and another one covered approximately seven days. It, do you have to to fall into this category where we would need a warrant to get this data? Does there have to be either historical data and or more than seven days of data that's being requested? Well, th th that's what the court says, that uh, they're limiting it to uh, cell site location information more than seven days. And they, they go to great pains to say this is a narrow ruling and we're only addressing historical cell site information more than seven days. Uh, but y you can be sure that there will be attempts to expand that. Uh, for instance, uh, there are lots of companies beyond cell site cell phone providers that uh, store this same kind of information. Uh, Google location history has uh, better and more and more accurate data than the cell zone cell providers. Uh, Facebook keeps location information. Your your car insurance, your rental car, all of these places might keep location information. So if the distinction is going to be historical location information, uh, expect this to be expanded soon. Okay, and we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later in the podcast when we uh, discuss whether or not you can you can. Ex expand this holding to trying to obtain uh, either real-time CSLI or uh, data that's less than seven days. Now, it's clear that the court treated the obtaining of these records as a search. Did the court opine on whether a warrant was necessary for this kind of search? I mean, not every search requires a warrant. 
Vehicle searches don't require warrants. A Terry stop and frisk doesn't require a warrant. So here, did they find that a warrant was necessary in this case, even though the search was authorized by a court order? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, because remember, once uh, the, the Fourth Amendment protects against unreasonable searches, and a search is an invasion by the government upon a, uh, an area where the individual has a reasonable expectation of privacy. So uh, once deciding that this is an area where the individual has an expectation of privacy, a legitimate one that society is prepared to, to adopt, uh, then you need a warrant to, to infringe on that expectation. Well, that's or an exception. Okay, you know, and this uh, brings up uh, uh, one of my pet peeves, which is uh, here uh, the court said a warrant was required, which necessarily means that you have to have probable cause. So the the standard that would need to be met to get the court order was not sufficient, even though in actuality there had been probable cause in this case. All right, th- that's so, the key point: is that these officers did everything right. They followed the law, law enacted by Congress. Uh, they got an order authorized by Congress. They did everything right. Uh, but the court is saying that that law didn't go far enough because the expectation of privacy that this court is willing to grant to the record holder is greater than what mm-hmm. Congress saw in passing the law. And, and, and I see that. But even that being the case, uh, one of the things that the court states – which gets, which grates on me a little bit, is they point out that, you know, the ultimate measure of whether a search is going to comport with the Fourth Amendment is reasonableness. But then they also state, in the absence of a warrant, a search is reasonable only if it falls within a specific exception to the warrant requirement. Well, how do you reconcile those two statements? Because they're creating over time, new exceptions to the warrant rule. So it means that when they say that there must be, in order for a search to be reasonable, there has to be a specific exception to the warrant requirement, if this means that there must be a pre-existing warrant exception to permit the search without a warrant, then the court's acceptance of warrantless vehicle searches based on probable cause or Terry stops based on reasonable suspicion could never have been recognized. On the other hand, if it means that a warrantless search can be justified only if an exception applies or the court creates a new exception, then it's devoid of any meaning. But, you know, defense counsel like to kind of take this language in isolation and say, yeah, you've got to fit it into a pre-existing exception instead of really just looking at it like it should be looked at is, hey, is this a reasonable search or not? Well, that's kind of my point is that uh, if your only question is, was this search reasonable Uh, and the officers followed the law and had probable cause, one could argue that the search was reasonable. Uh, This court wants to go a little bit further and say that, uh, uh, like I say, that the law didn't go far enough. Uh, I think it's an interesting discussion, and I, I don't want to get too far off track here, but this, this whole notion about where the, the reasonable expectation of privacy comes from, and I, I really enjoyed the Thomas dissent. Okay, where, and for our listeners, Thomas dissent just in, in general questions whether or not we should continue to use the reasonable expectation of privacy test for determining whether or not a, a breach of that expectation of privacy constitutes a search. And Go he, ahead. And he talks about where that test came from. 
And he describes in the the cat's uh, oral argument, uh, the lawyer who was fresh out of law school uh, just threw it out as sort of an aside during the oral argument that really the, the, the test for a constitutional violation ought to be like a torts test where is my expectation violated? Uh, it was not briefed. It was not discussed. It was not argued. But it made it into Harlan's concurring opinion. And then a year later, it made it into the majority opinion in Terry versus Ohio. Uh, so the, the whole idea of the constitutional standard being what's your reasonable expectation really just came out of, uh, out of nowhere from a, a fairly <laughs> new lawyer during or, oral argument. Uh, and now here we are, what, 40 years later trying to figure out what it means. So, Tom, back in 2012, uh, the high court in United States versus Jones held that installing a GPS tracking device on defendant's automobile was a search because it physically occupied private property of the defendant for the purpose of obtaining information. However, a majority of the justices, uh, that we know from because we had two concurring opinions, and if you add them all up, you get to the majority— Uh, A majority also believed that the long-term monitoring of a vehicle that tracked every movement a person made in the vehicle impinged on that uh, driver's expectations of privacy and could be viewed as a search as well. However, the Jones Court didn't decide whether a warrant was needed to conduct such a a GPS uh, attachment to a vehicle. The Carpenter Court seems now to find that a search in the case before it required a warrant. So does the holding in Carpenter now indicate that long-term monitoring of a vehicle by attaching a GPS device, as in, as in the Jones case, would now also require a warrant? Oh, I, I think so, definitely. Uh, I, I think for practical purposes, at least in California, uh, our officers need to be guided by the statutory requirements of a GPS installation and monitoring. And... Uh, after Jones, the legislature quickly passed uh, an amendment to Penal Code 1524 that authorized installation, a warrant to install a GPS monitor. And the the, the method about how we can uh, monitor the signals from that installation are listed out in Penal Code 1534. Uh, and it does. It gives a strict time limit about uh, the, the duration of the monitoring uh, and a, a geographical limit. You can only monitor within California. Okay, so uh, in most circumstances then, we are already getting a search warrant to uh, attach like a GPS tracking device because of the statute, regardless of whether or not the United States Supreme Court would require such such a warrant. Right. In, in both the GPS case and in the cell phone case, there's certainly a constitutional standard about expectation of privacy, but the statutory limitations can go much further than the Constitution. And in California, in both cases, in GPS and in cell phone records, our statutory limitations far exceed what the Constitution requires. I know sometimes I get questions from officers regarding whether or not they can attach a GPS device uh, if the defendant has a probation search clause. I wonder if uh, similar questions will arise whether or not we could get CSLI data from someone who is a probationer without getting a, a warrant. Right, and, and that's an interesting point you bring up because, as you say, uh, Jones addressed two separate issues. One, the installation 
which you, you need this, I think a probation search clause would get the installation. Mm-hmm. But the second is the pervasive monitoring. And I think there's a problem with a probation search clause if you want to do 24-7 monitoring for an extended period. Because you can't do a 24-7 physical search pursuant to a probation search clause, a court would find that to be uh, harassing. So uh, uh, I don't have a problem with doing an install of a GPS based on a search clause, but I do think you need a warrant to authorize the long-term monitoring. Okay. Um, it's an open question. Open at, question. At, at this juncture. All right. Now, getting back to the decision in Carpenter, it, did, the, did the court ever address the claim that since the information provided from the cell phone doesn't allow actual precise pinpointing of a person's whereabouts? I mean, they talked about it just being able to pinpoint someone within a quarter square mile uh, or up to uh, two square miles. Did they ever address the claim that because of that, this type of monitoring shouldn't be viewed in the same way as monitoring a person uh, in a way that would reveal more precisely their whereabouts at any given time should be treated? They, they did address that, and the majority opinion had more confidence in the precision of these records, I think, than the dissents did. Uh, but uh, the point that the majority made was that technology is advancing, and as we uh, uh, develop newer and better uh, cell phone technology, uh, we will be able to use these kinds of records to uh, pinpoint people more, and that the constitutional standard really can't be dependent on evolving technology. Uh, just the mere fact that they can... Uh, uh, plot a person's location. And and they point out that really that's the point of these records anyway. And in closing argument, the prosecutor in this case said uh, that these records place the defendant at the robberies. Uh, so if the prosecution is going to rely on them to be essentially accurate location information, then uh, the Constitution can as well. So it's interesting they were doing a little future forecasting as to where the technology would go, and they... Uh, preempted that by creating some rules that take into account technology that we haven't yet uh, developed. Right. Okay. Now, uh, Tom, one of the dissenting justices, Justice Alito, contended the warrant requirement simply does not apply when the government acquires records using compulsory process, like subpoenas, since subpoenas for documents do not involve the direct taking of evidence, and they are at most a constructive search uh, conducted by the target of the subpoena. How did the majority decision, how did, the, how did they address this uh, claim of the dissent, and I'm sure also a claim made by the, uh, the government? Yes, the court did address that uh, issue, but frankly, in my opinion, not in a very satisfactory way. Uh, let me say this. Alito's uh, point was that a warrant is a court order that allows the government to intrude in a physical location, to seize property, to conduct a search. Uh, But these warrants are different. They don't allow the government to intrude and actually take data. These warrants actually spell out the way they need to be executed. And and what has to happen is that the order or the warrant is uh, delivered to the third-party record holder, and the third-party record holder produces the information. That sounds more like a subpoena, uh, but because of the, the, the way the federal ECPA and also the California ECPA were drafted, 
these are records that require uh, a greater legal standard to access. They need probable cause for content or or uh, uh, articulable facts for uh, metadata under the 2703D order. Uh, the court didn't really address that uh, that three-tiered hierarchy at all. They just responded with a, a blanket statement that says, we have never held that a subpoena, that the government may subpoena third-party records in which a suspect has a reasonable expectation of privacy. Well, uh, does that mean that uh, we can no longer use subpoenas to obtain records in which a defendant has a reasonable expectation of privacy? Uh, that's exactly what it means, yes. Uh, I think the inter- interesting thing is the court statement, we've never held that you can get these uh, records with a subpoena if there's an expectation of privacy. Uh, in fact, the court had never held that there was an expectation of privacy in these records before. Uh, so there had never been a requirement for a, a warrant before, a, a constitutional requirement. There was a statutory requirement, and we've talked about that. Uh, now the court is saying it's not just a statutory requirement that you get a warrant but it's also a constitutional requirement. Well, a defendant may have a reasonable expectation of privacy in a lot of records, or at least a colorable reasonable expectation of privacy in a lot of records, including like bank records. But the court has previously held uh, that bank records, for example, are not something that we need to obtain a search warrant for. And they specifically said in the Carpenter case itself that they were not overruling their prior decisions in Miller, which deals with bank records, or their prior decision in Smith, which deals with uh, uh, attaching uh, and, and, and collecting information about t- uh, telephone calls. So w- where are we at? Um, um, are we now expected to get a subpoena every time a defendant might have a reasonable expectation of privacy in third-party records? Uh, Yes, and if there's a – the courts has now started using the term legitimate expectation of privacy in addition to reasonable expectation of privacy. But if there is an expectation of privacy, uh, it's a constitutional search and we need a warrant or an exception. The uh, – I want to make uh, two points. One, that uh, it's a two-part test, that there be an actual expectation of privacy – and that it be an expectation that uh, society is willing to recognize. Uh, Several of the dissents make the uh, uh, point that uh, how do we decide what expectation society is willing to recognize? We don't take a poll. Uh, One way to look at that might be, well, do the elected representatives, have they ruled on it? And unlike Miller and uh, – well, unlike Miller, they they, – Uh, This is an area where the elected representatives have ruled. They have uh, issued a a law or written a law about uh, how these searches should be conducted. And that law is 2703D, where if you want metadata, you can get it with a court order. Uh, This court has said that that, uh, that law passed by the elected representatives doesn't go far enough that there is a greater expectation of privacy than the law describes. Uh, the second point is the court was very uh, particular, very clear about saying that this is a narrow ruling. This uh, applies to historical cell phone information more than seven days, that they are not overruling Miller, 
which deals with bank records, and they are not overruling Smith, which deals with um, uh, trap and trace orders. While this opinion was, or uh, this case was being argued, there was another case that was uh, sitting at the Supreme Court on a petition for cert, and it's a case that I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with. It's the the Silk Road case, uh, U.S. versus Ross Albright, uh, who went by the, the the name the Dread Pirate Roberts. One of the issues on appeal by Albright was the the Smith opinion. The the government in the Albright case used a 2703D order to get trap and trace information. And Albright has made the argument that Smith was wrong and that he had a reasonable expectation of privacy, a constitutionally protected expectation of privacy in his trap and trace records. Uh, That petition for cert was stayed pending outcome of Carpenter. And after Carpenter was decided, uh, Smith filed another petition saying, all right, now, see, there's an expectation of privacy in these third-party records. On June 28th, the court denied cert. So they've doubled down on the, the, the statement that we're not overruling Smith. Okay, so maybe we can take the majority at its word that this is really a limited holding and uh, we are not going to be expanding the requirement to get a search warrant for like medical records or anything that might arguably uh, involve people's expectations of privacy beyond the situation where uh, it involves records that uh, chronicle someone's uh, everyday movements over a long period of time. Uh, but I'm sure the defense counsel will be uh, trying to expand uh, Carpenter as much as they possibly can. Um, can exigent circumstances justify, you think, obtaining either real-time or historical CSLI without a warrant in California? Yes, and the, the court uh, it says that directly. Uh, they say that the normal constitutional search exceptions certainly apply here, and they list uh, fleeing felon, uh, uh, risk of death, risk of serious physical injury, or risk of uh, destruction of evidence. The point I want to make, though, is, as we've said a couple of times, there can be constitutional protections and there can be statutory protections, and the statutory protections can go further than the constitutional protections. And in both the federal ECPA and in California ECPA... And when you say ECPA, we're talking about Electronic Communications Privacy Act? Right. In in the federal st- statute, it's at 18 U.S.C. 2702 are the exceptions that allow disclosure of electronic communication information. In California, it's at Penal Code 15, uh, 1546.1. Uh, those statutory protections go further than the constitutional protection, and the exigency exception applies in both, federal and state, applies only to death or serious physical injury. So you cannot get uh, historical cell phone information uh, based on fleeing felon or destruction of evidence, uh, even though the court basically says that you can. Well, in California, you're saying that the exigent circumstances exception which allows a provider to give information like historical or real-time CSLI uh, has, uh, might not be as expansive as allowing that disclosure uh, without a warrant if you're just trying to chase or track down someone and they don't present a threat of harm of serious bodily injury. Right, and in the federal 
ECPA, uh, the exigency exception is the same as the California exigency exception for uh, electronic communication information. Okay, so if there's any kind of question about whether or not exigent circumstances exist uh, and there's any possibility of getting a warrant and you need real-time or historical CSLI, officers uh, exercising caution would try and get that warrant. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, What about real-time CSLI or historical CSLI involving less than a week of data? Uh, Should, again, uh, law enforcement exercise caution and try and seek a warrant uh, before trying to obtain that stuff, even though that information was not... uh, whether or not that information required a warrant was a question specifically left open by the court in Carpenter? Here's what I always tell officers. Uh, we have an argument. The court leaves open the argument that uh, that it's not a constitutional protection for less than seven days. Uh, but if you get a warrant, we don't have to have that argument. Uh, then the, the seizure was authorized by the court. And in California, remember uh, that Cal ECPA goes further than than the constitutional standard. So the seven-day standard, uh, I wouldn't rely on that in California. In Carpenter, they mentioned these tower dumps uh, and said we're not deciding whether or not a warrant is needed to obtain a tower dump. Uh, Tom, what is a tower dump and what do you think, uh, whether or not it's going to be necessary for us to get a search warrant to obtain a tower dump? Uh, we do need a search warrant. A tower dump is, say you have a crime and you don't have a suspect. You're trying to identify uh, potential suspects in the area. And it, it works better if you have multiple crimes in different locations or if your crime is in a uh, rural uh, location where there's not a lot of people. Uh, a tower dump is where you're asking the cell phone service provider, the owner of the tower, to tell you every device that was connected to the tower uh, during the time of your crime. So you might get a list of uh, uh, 50 or 100 cell phones that were making calls on the tower. Uh, Your suspect may be one of those people if he was conducting a call or receiving a text during the crime. And if you have multiple locations, if the same suspect appears on multiple towers during multiple burglaries, uh, that's probably the guy. Okay, so that's towered up, and you recommend that they do get a, a search warrant, even though it was left open that's a question in Carpenter. It, it's left open in Carpenter whether there's a constitutional protection for that information. Mm-hmm. But that information is governed by Cal ECPA, so you have to get a warrant in oh. California. Okay, so in that regard then, in light of the existence of uh, the California Electronic Communications uh, Privacy Act, Will Carpenter actually require officers in California to change the way they do business when it comes to obtaining CSLI, or does it really have not that much of a significant impact? I think for practically day-to-day operation of officers in the field, I don't think Carpenter is going to change a whole lot. Uh, you still need a warrant to access information. Uh, you still can't use a 2703D order, as these officers did. Uh, I think there's a potential that it could make a difference if something goes wrong and the DA now is trying to uh, defend a motion to suppress. And uh, previously there was an argument 
that uh, if it wasn't a constitutional violation, then maybe we had a good faith belief and we can use a, 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 a California versus Jackson kind of argument that uh, would prevent suppression of the evidence. Uh, now, if it's a constitutional violation, those avenues or those, those second-guess arguments are, are gone. Um, do you think that if there is incidental uh, records that might that the defendant might have a reasonable expectation of privacy in that would potentially be accessed when we're trying to subpoena records from uh, that, that don't involve a reasonable expectation of privacy. In other words, okay, so there's a few records in there that might implicate a defendant's reasonable expectation of privacy that we need to get a, a, a search warrant for those records? So if we're uh, using a legal means to get records uh, that do not fall under Carpenter, uh, and in the process we receive records that arguably could fall under Carpenter. Uh, I think the Plainview Doctrine applies, uh, that if we exercise good faith and those records came into our possession while we were doing something that we had a right to do, then uh, I don't think there's a constitutional problem with viewing those records. But remember, the Plainview Doctrine is limited. So if you uh, come across those records you and you recognize the contraband nature of the evidence, you can seize them and that's fine. But if you want to continue uh, reviewing either the produced records or to get more of that kind of record, then you'll need a warrant to authorize that continued review. Okay, and I think the, the court in Carpenter recognized that because they did uh, expressly talk about Situations where they're not trying to, they say they're not trying to suggest that you need to get a warrant anytime there might be some uh, reasonable expectation of privacy in incidental records that might be collected. Well, yeah, right. The, 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 we got to be careful about saying records in which there's an expectation, of, a reasonable expectation of privacy. Because if the court is willing to say we have an expectation of privacy in those records, then that by nature requires a warrant to get those records. Uh, but if we get records that uh, where the court has not yet said there's an expectation of privacy, uh, then we probably don't need a warrant. But we still need some legal authority to get those warrants, whether it be uh, a de-order or a subpoena. Um, but I think the, the important point to make, though, is they're talking about historical location information from cell providers, and they try to make it very narrow. Uh, but as we said at the beginning – there are lots of companies that have location information, uh, including Google, including uh, rental car companies or whatever. Uh, even uh, your Panera customer card, uh, they have a, Panera has a record of every time you've bought a sandwich, every store you bought a sandwich at. Uh, so that's location information. It's banking information. It's food information. Um, will a court at some point say that there's an expectation of privacy in that? And will that expectation of privacy be something that uh, the court would consider legitimate? Uh, we don't know. Okay. I know that the court, and maybe I'm harping on this a little bit much, but the, the court did seem to try and con uh, put some constraints on the, the scope of what they were saying. Uh, they did indicate that if there were records that might reveal the location of someone, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are records that we need a 
to obtain a search warrant for it. So that if just because someone might be located somewhere and the record that we're getting is going to show where they were located, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have a reasonable expectation of privacy in it, correct? Right. That's exactly right. Uh, and for instance, I, I said your Panera uh, sandwich card, uh, that's going to reveal your location. But uh, as far as the court said now, just the mere fact that it uh, incidentally will uh, reveal your location does not bring that within the Carpenter decision. So we can still get those records uh, without a, a constitutional search warrant. And in that regard, what about other con- types of surveillance, uh, you know, binoculars or, or, or other types of devices which allow police to conduct surveillance, which would also enhance law enforcement's ability to determine your location and what you're doing? W- were those put into question by this decision? Uh, the court specifically says that they're not addressing those, that they're not trying to change the existing rules on physical surveillance or uh, national security issues uh, 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 or uh, normal surveillance techniques like uh, surveillance cameras. Okay. Now, uh, in the opinion and in the IPG memo that will accompany this podcast, uh, we have a discussion of what kind of records we can expect uh, to be obtaining in the normal way by way of subpoena, uh, a list of those kinds of records. Certainly, there's still going to be some issues that are open and some avenues for the defense counsel to try and make some hay when it comes to getting CSLI information, information that might be akin to it. But hopefully, uh, this expansion of what constitutes a search and when we need to get a search warrant uh, will not overwhelm us too badly. Anyway, Tom, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me.